Section Zero of Mark Twain's Autobiography, with an introduction by Albert Bigelow Payne, Volume One, read by John Greenman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume One, introduction by Albert Bigelow Payne, and preface by Mark Twain. Early Fragments. 1870 to 1877. Note, the various divisions and chapters of this work, in accordance with the author's wish, are arranged in the order in which they were written, regardless of the chronology of events. I will construct a text. What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head, and is known to none but himself all day long and every day the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts not those other things are his history his acts and his words are merely the visible thin crust of his world with its scattered snow summits and its vacant wastes of water and they are so trifling a part of his bulk a mere skin enveloping it. The mass of him is hidden. It and its volcanic fires that toss and boil and never rest, night nor day. These are his life, and they are not written, and cannot be written. Every day would make a whole book of eighty thousand words, three hundred and sixty-five books a year. Biographies are but the clothes and buttons of the man the biography of the man himself cannot be written m t introduction mark twain had been a celebrity for a good many years before he could be persuaded to regard himself as anything more than an accident a newswriter to whom distinction had come as a matter of good fortune rather than as a tribute to genius Sooner or later his vein would be worked out, when he would of necessity embark in other pursuits. He had already owned a newspaper, and experimented, more or less casually and unfortunately, with a variety of other enterprises, when, in 1884, he capitalized a publishing concern, primarily to produce his own works, but not without a view to the establishment of something more dependable than authorship. It probably never occurred to him during those years that he had achieved anything like a permanent place in literary history. If the idea of an autobiography had intruded itself now and then, it had not seriously troubled him. Note, most of Mark Twain's work up to this time, Roughing It, Tom Sawyer, Life on the Mississippi, etc., had been of an autobiographical nature. Also, as early as 1870, he had jotted down an occasional reminiscent chapter for possible publication, though apparently with no idea of a continuous narrative. Such of these chapters as have survived are included in Volume I of the present work, ABP. But a year later, when the publication by his firm of The Memoirs of General U.S. Grant brought him into daily association with the dying conqueror, the thought came that the story of this episode might be worthy of preservation. 
it was not for the present at least to be an autobiography but no more than a few chapters built around a great historic figure general grant's own difficulties in setting down his memories suggested prompt action mark twain's former lecture agent james redpath was visiting him at this time and with a knowledge of shorthand became his amanuensis the work they did together was considerable covering in detail the story of the grant publishing venture clemens may have planned other chapters of a personal sort but unaccustomed to dictation he found the work tedious with a result as it seemed to him unsatisfactory a number of important things happened to mark twain during the next dozen years among them his business failure which left him with a load of debt dependent entirely upon authorship and the lecture platform for rehabilitation and support the story of his splendid victory the payment to the last dollar of his indebtedness has been widely told he was in vienna when he completed this triumph and whatever he had been before he was now unquestionably a world figure with a recognized place in history realization of this may have prompted him to begin during those busy vienna winters eighteen ninety seven to eighteen ninety nine something in the nature of an autobiography recollections of his missouri childhood a picture as primitive and far removed from today as anything of the colonial period these chapters were handwritten his memory was fresh and eager and in none of his work is there greater charm as he proceeded he did not confine himself to his earlier years but traveled back and forth setting down whatever was in his mind at the moment he worked incidentally at this record for two or three years eventually laying it aside for more immediate things five years later in florence where he had taken mrs clemens for her health he again applied himself to what he now definitely termed his autobiography as in that earlier day he dictated and this time found it quite to his liking he completed some random memories of more or less importance and might have carried the work further but for his wife's rapidly failing health her death and his return to america followed and there was an interval of another two years before the autobiographical chapters were again resumed it was in january nineteen o six that the present writer became associated with mark twain as his biographer elsewhere i have told of that arrangement and may omit most of the story here it had been agreed that i should bring a stenographer to whom he would dictate notes for my use but a subsequent inspiration prompted him to suggest that he might in this way continue his autobiography from which i would be at liberty to draw material for my own undertaking we began with this understanding and during two hours of the forenoon on several days of each week he talked pretty steadily to a select audience of two wandering up and down the years as inclination led him relating in his inimitable way incidents episodes conclusions whatever the moment presented to his fancy it was his custom to stay in bed until noon and he remained there during most of the earlier dictations clad in a handsome dressing-gown propped against great snowy pillows he loved this loose luxury and ease and found it conducive to thought on the little table beside him where lay his cigars papers 
pipes and various knick-knacks shone a reading-lamp making more brilliant his rich coloring and the gleam of his shining hair there was daylight too but it was north light and the winter days were dull the walls of the room a deep unreflecting red his bed was a vast carved antique affair its outlines blending into the luxuriant background the whole focusing to the striking central figure made a picture of classic value his talk was absorbingly interesting it never failed to be that even when it left something to be desired as history mark twain's memory had become capricious and his vivid imagination did not always supply his story with details of crystal accuracy but always it was a delightful story amusing tragic or instructive and it was likely to be one of these things at one instant and another at the next often he did not know until the moment of beginning what was to be his subject for the day then he was likely to go drifting among his memories in a quite irresponsible fashion the fashion of table conversation as he said the methodless method of the human mind he had concluded that this was the proper way to write autobiography or as he best conveys it in his own introductory note start at no particular time of your life wander at your free will all over your life talk only about the things which interest you for the moment drop it the moment its interest threatens to pale and turn your talk upon the new and more interesting thing that has intruded itself into your mind meantime certainly there is something to be said in favor of his plan and i often thought it the best plan for his kind of autobiography which was really not autobiography at all in the meaning generally conveyed by that term but a series of entertaining stories and opinions dinner-table talks in fact such as he had always delivered in his own home and elsewhere and with about the same latitude and elaboration i do not wish to convey that his narrative is in any sense a mere fairy tale many of the chapters especially the earlier ones are vividly true in their presentation the things he told of mrs clemens and susie are marvelously and beautifully true in spirit and aspect and the story as a whole is amazingly faithful in the character picture it presents of the man himself it was only when he relied upon his memory for details of general history or when his imagination responded to old prejudice or when lifelong habit prompted a good story that he went wandering into fields of elaboration and gathered there such flowers and thorns as his fancy or feelings seemed to require mark twain's soul was built of the very fabric of truth so far as moral intent was concerned but memory often betrayed him even when he tried most to be accurate he realized this himself and once said plaintively when i was younger i could remember anything whether it happened or not but i am getting old and soon i shall remember only the latter and at another time paraphrasing josh billings it isn't so astonishing the things that i can remember as the number of things i can remember that aren't so 
Perhaps it is proper to assure the reader that positive mistakes of date and occurrence have been corrected, while, for the rest, the matter of mere detail is of less importance than that the charm of the telling should remain undisturbed. Our work, begun in the New York house at 21 Fifth Avenue, continued with considerable regularity during a period of about two years, and intermittently during another two. When the first spring came it was transferred to the Upton House, on the slopes of Monadnock near Dublin, New Hampshire, a perfect setting for the dictations. He no longer remained in bed, but, clad in creamy white flannels and loose Morocco slippers, bareheaded, he paced up and down the long veranda against a background of far-lying forest and distant hill. As I think of that time now, I can still hear the ceaseless slippered shuffling walk and see the white figure with its rocking, rolling movement, that preternaturally beautiful landscape behind it, and hear his deliberate speech, always deliberate except at rare intervals, always impressive, whatever the subject might be. In September we returned to the New York house, and the work was continued there, that winter and the next. It reached its conclusion at Stormfield, the new home which he had built at Reading, Connecticut, and it was here that he died April 21, 1910. In the beginning it was Mark Twain's frequently expressed command that the autobiography was not to be published until he had been dead at least a hundred years. But as the months passed he modified this idea, and himself selected a number of chapters for use in the North American Review. Discussing the matter later, he expressed a willingness that any portions of the work not dealing too savagely with living persons or their immediate descendants should be published sooner, either serially or in book form. The manuscript in time became very large and very inclusive. He even incorporated in it articles and stories which he had written and laid aside, among them Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven. Is Shakespeare Dead was originally a part of the autobiography, but he published it separately in a small volume. The Death of Jean, written, not dictated, immediately following that tragic event, was to be the closing chapter, and such in time it will become. He wished, however, that it should have separate publication, and it is for the present included in another volume. It was his last complete writing of any sort, and in all his work from beginning to end there is nothing more perfect, nothing more beautiful. Albert Bigelow Payne I am writing from the grave. On these terms only can a man be approximately frank. He cannot be straightly and unqualifiedly frank, either in the grave or out of it. Preface As from the Grave In this autobiography I shall keep in mind the fact that I am speaking from the grave. I am literally speaking from the grave, because I shall be dead when the book issues from the press. I speak from the grave rather than with my living tongue, for a good reason. I can speak thence freely. When a man is writing a book dealing with the privacies of his life, a book which is to be read while he is still alive, 
he shrinks from speaking his whole frank mind all his attempts to do it fail he recognizes that he is trying to do a thing which is wholly impossible to a human being the frankest and freest and privatest product of the human mind and heart is a love-letter the writer gets his limitless freedom of statement and expression from his sense that no stranger is going to see what he is writing sometimes there is a breach of promise case by and by and when he sees his letter in print it makes him cruelly uncomfortable and he perceives that he never would have unbosomed himself to that large and honest degree if he had known that he was writing for the public he cannot find anything in the letter that was not true honest and respectworthy but no matter he would have been very much more reserved if he had known he was writing for print it has seemed to me that i could be as frank and free and unembarrassed as a love-letter if i knew that what i was writing would be exposed to no eye until i was dead and unaware and indifferent mark twain end of section zero introduction and preface